My name is Heidi and I love stories. Funny stories and sad stories and what on earth just happened to stories. Well, as it turns out, the Bible is full of them. And after two decades in Sunday school, plus a master's in English, I'm here to tell them to you. Get ready. This is Messy Scripture. All right, so this episode's basically a field trip, and I know it's been a little while since we've had a string of proper story, story, stories, like a lot of history, which is kind of like a story, but not exactly. This episode is exclusively stories, and it takes place in the city of Babylon, pretty much. See, King Nebuchadnezzar took a bunch of the vessels from the Temple of God, and then he also sent back his chief eunuch to pick up the best of the best of the boys. So these are the kind of guys who are royal and handsome and competent and whatever, and they are going to be trained in the language of the Chaldeans, i.e. the Babylonians, and then after like three years, they're going to be presented before the king and they'll serve in his court. Basically, it's like, let's get the best to the Israelites, or in this case, the best of those of Judah, and let's make them our royalty, like let's make them our fancy servants. We're really only going to be following four of these people who were taken from Judah, but just be aware, because it's going to come up later on in the season, that a lot of people were taken. But the four we're following are named Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Once they arrived in Babylon, the chief eunuch renamed all four of them and gave them Babylonian names. Those are Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in order. Now, Belteshazzar is one you're never going to hear about because that's Daniel and he wrote the book. So he calls himself Daniel throughout the book of Daniel, which is the episode we're doing. So when they get to Babylon, keep in mind, the Babylonians ain't exactly kosher. Like they kind of whatever. And also, it was not okay to eat food sacrificed, of course, to other idols, to other gods. And so even if the food could be, in theory allowed under a Jewish diet, it wouldn't have been appropriate to eat because it very well could have been used in a sacrifice and there was no way to be sure for Daniel. So he and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego requested that they be served only vegetables and water so that they wouldn't have to defile themselves with the king's food. And the guy who's in charge of the food is like, do you want to get me killed? Do you want to get you killed? Because if y'all look sickly, if y'all aren't equally as healthy as everyone else, I'm going to get in so much trouble. So Daniel and the boys offer a sort of compromise. Give them a trial run. Give them, say, 10 days. And if they're not the healthiest bunch of the bunch, then, you know, they'll eat the king's food. And this is not pro-vegetarianism necessarily. I'm also not against it. This is cited in Daniel as being a miracle from God that they were the healthiest people there, um, eating their diet of vegetables and water, not drinking the king's wine, not eating the king's food. And so the four of them were actually blessed incredibly. They were literary, scholarly, smart, and Daniel was known for being able to interpret dreams specifically. He was really wise with the things that normally would be under like a magician's wheelhouse. So when the three-year training was up, Daniel, Hananiah, i.e. Shadrach, Mishael, i.e. Meshach, and Azariah, i.e. Abednego, were chosen to stand before the king and to serve in his court. And Daniel specifically actually served in the court through several kings, all the way up to King Cyrus. This episode, by the way, is going to cover all the way up until King Cyrus, which is pretty impressive, if I do say so myself. But since Daniel was there, we're going to cover all the story bits of Daniel. So the four of them, with their special diet after three years, are now serving in King Nebuchadnezzar's court, like serving the king of Babylon the most powerful man in the world. 
Hooray! Now, in Nebuchadnezzar's reign, he had this recurring dream that was driving him nuts. It was disturbing and confusing and scary, and he wanted to know what it meant. But he wanted to be sure that the meaning wasn't just being shot off the hip, that it wasn't the kind of thing where someone was like, oh, I think it means that you're the best and you're the sexiest and you're the smartest. No one like Nebuchadnezzar, no one black. So he told all of his sorcerers and magicians and interpreters that they had to not only interpret the dream, but they had to tell him the dream. They had to recount what it was that he dreamed and then tell him what it meant. And they were all like, that's impossible. No one can do that. You have to start by telling us the dream. And that pissed him off because they're magicians. They should be able to handle this. It's not that hard, apparently. See, the king is like, you guys are going to lie to me if I tell you what the dream means. And they're like, it's not that. It's that only the gods know what people dream about. And the gods don't tell us those things. So you need to tell us those things. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, I'm going to put all of you to death if you don't give me an interpretation. So now all of the wise men, i.e. all the counselors, magicians, sorcerers, blah, 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 are going to be put to death. And Daniel goes and asks for a little bit more time. Specifically, he asks to set an appointment with the king before he starts killing everybody. And then once Daniel makes his appointment with the king, he goes to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and is like, we got to pray right now because I don't know what this dream is and we're all going to die. And so they do. And when the time comes, Daniel goes before Nebuchadnezzar and is like, great king, I know what you dreamed and I know what it means. More specifically, I was told by God because literally nobody could fulfill your request. But since the gods know, i.e. my God knows and my God sent you the dream, I can tell you what it means because he told me about it. If this sounds a little bit Joseph-esque, you know, a really handsome young man brought before a foreign king to interpret their dreams. It's because it is a lot like Joseph, but it's Daniel this time. And instead of Egypt, it's Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of a statue The head was made of gold, the chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and its feet iron mixed with clay. And this is an imposing, huge figure, huge statue. And a stone comes from a mountain carved out by the hand of a god or something because it is not a human. And the stone breaks the statue down and it, the stone, becomes a mountain. This is one of Daniel's most famous prophecies as well. Uh, And the interpretation is that Nebuchadnezzar is the golden head, and there would be kingdoms and empires that would follow him, each successively less impressive, successively less cool. Um, Followed, you know, silver, then bronze, then iron, which would be the cruelest, and then the mixed empire. And at the end, a stone, i.e., the stone the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone Christ, would knock down all of the kingdoms and would establish himself as the kingdom that would never end this mountain that overshadowed every statue. And so Daniel's like, here's the good news. Uh, You're great. Your kingdom's fine. This dream is not really about our time period. The different news is that you're kind of as good as it's going to get for the world. So (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar is thrilled. He worships God and is like, that's so cool. You did it. And so Daniel gets a big promotion. But King Nebuchadnezzar is king of the most powerful empire in the world. So he's got a bit of an ego problem. 
And by a bit, I mean a big ego problem. And he has commissioned after he has this dream that he has the golden head on this, you know, statue of empires. He has commissioned a giant gold statue of himself that everyone has to bow down and worship anytime they hear this music that's going to be, you know, played by the court musicians. They have to bow before Nebuchadnezzar, who is, you know, setting himself up as a god. We don't know where Daniel is at this time because he doesn't appear in this story, but his buddies, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, i.e. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which we're going to go with their Babylonian names for the duration of the episode, are in town. And when they hear this, this is bad news for them because they can't bow before King Nebuchadnezzar as a god. They'll happily bow before him as king, but he's not a god, and they're not going to bow before this image of him. And there's a pretty high penalty to not bowing before this image. And it's not like it's hard. You just bow, but it's wrong. It's deeply wrong. The stakes are very high. The punishment for not bowing before this image of King Nebuchadnezzar is to be thrown into a furnace, consumed by fire whole immediately. And so the first time the music plays, the harps, the lyres, the flutes, Everyone bows, and these three are just standing there, not bowing. And the word comes back to the king, and he calls them in, because remember, they're not insignificant in his court, and so he's wanting to find out what's going on. He's pissed, because how dare they not worship his gods? How dare they not worship him? And so he asks them, like, do you think that there's a god that can save you from me? Do you really think that you are going to get out of this alive? And they respond, We don't know. This isn't about you, O king. You're not our god. And so we can't bow before you like you are. If God saves us, God saves us. And if he doesn't, he doesn't. But we're not here to pander to you. As you can imagine, this answer did not sit well with King Nebuchadnezzar, who immediately had the furnace heated up four times what it normally would be. He is absolutely going to kill them immediately with fire. And as soon as the furnace is ready, he has Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bound up and thrown into this furnace. And the furnace, by the time they were thrown in, was so hot that the men who opened the door instantly died. Like, this is not a regular furnace. Have you ever been so confused that you weren't angry anymore? Like, you were mad and then something happened and it was just so bizarre that you couldn't be angry? That happens to King Nebuchadnezzar here because he's like, hey, just double checking, uh, head count, we threw three people into the furnace, right? And everyone's like, yep, three people, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who wouldn't bow before you as God. Nebuchadnezzar's like, cool, cool, cool. So there are four people in there. The three of them walking around with no ropes on them, and then one more person who looks like the son of a god. It's a theophany, people, an appearance of God in the flesh. Christ on earth. How freaking cool is that? And so Nebuchadnezzar orders the furnace door to be opened and out march Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego after walking around with God in the flesh in a furnace. They don't even smell like smoke. The ropes have burned off, but their clothes are untouched. And they're like, hello. And the king is like, your God is God, 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 like God, God, like not like me, God. And he sets up a decree that anyone who speaks out against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego Anyone that prevents the worship of that god shall be put to death, because that god can actually jump into a furnace. Where's everybody else's gods? And King Nebuchadnezzar is starting to worship God pretty intently, starting to get it that 
God is God, that while he overthrew Judah, he was not overthrowing God, that God had ordained it. All of these things are starting to click, but they haven't quite gotten there yet. And we know that because he has another dream. And he calls Daniel in and he's like, Daniel, explain this dream to me. I had this dream that some watchman came down from heaven and ordered all of the limbs to be chopped off a tree, chopped down to just a stump, but that the stump would be left in the ground and like it would be covered in dew. And then after a certain amount of time, it started to grow back. What does it mean? And Daniel's like, I really wish this was about your enemies, but it's about you. God is sending you a warning that if your pride gets out of hand, he's going to chop you down like a tree, but he's not going to kill you. He's going to let you kind of come back after a certain period of time. Oh, I really don't like this. And so King Nebuchadnezzar takes this to heart for a year. And at this point in the book, actually, King Nebuchadnezzar is doing a lot of the writing, which is pretty cool. But after a year, he forgets (laughs) and he looks out and he sees his kingdom and he's like, there's no king like me. I am the best. And immediately a voice from heaven is like, you done screwed up, A.A. Ron. I'm taking the kingdom and I'm taking your mind. And King Nebuchadnezzar immediately was struck dumb to the point that he was driven away from other human beings. He had to eat grass like an ox and his nails grew to be like talons, his hair like a mane. He lived in the fields for a while with no sanity, feeding like an animal. And then, after a certain period of time, his mind was restored to him and he looked up to heaven and was like, yeah, no, God's really God, God. Like, God, God, God. He gets it. And he worships the God of Judah, the God of Israel. His reason is restored and he resumes being king over Babylon for the rest of his days. What's really cool is that God took Nebuchadnezzar's sanity, but he didn't actually take his throne He gave Nebuchadnezzar another chance, and he took it. When he was restored, he was really restored. Like, his people were still waiting for him, and his throne was waiting for him. And he ruled until he passed on, at which time his son Belshazzar took over the kingdom. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar, who understood by the end of his life that God is on the side of the humble, that God is on the side of those who walk understanding who he is, Belshazzar didn't get it at all. This is going to be one of those exceptional episodes where I bring up some stuff we know from regular history and not from the Bible because it ties together. Belshazzar throws this party for a thousand of his peeps and he uses the vessels from the temple of God, like all the things that were stolen, all the holy relics that they took from the temple. He's using them at this big drunken orgy. He is also currently under siege by the Persians. Belshazzar is throwing this party because Babylon has hanging gardens and a river and they don't need to worry about being sieged because their food all comes from the inside. So basically they're like, we can starve out an army from the outside. Like, we'll be fine. So as he's praising his own gods, these gods that are made of stuff uh, and drinking out of the temple vessels, a human hand shows up floating in the air and everyone sees this hand as it carves with its finger the proverbial writing on the wall. Everyone is freaking out and the king is like, uh, I'm going to reward anyone who can read this because this is really weird. (laughs) You'll get a gold chain. You'll be third ruler in the kingdom. You'll get all this stuff. And everyone's like, that sounds dope. But like, we totally can't read this. Of course, that freaks out Belshazzar even more until the queen is like, 
don't worry about it. There's this guy named Daniel. He served with your dad. He's super cool. And he's really good at interpreting weird crap like this. Like, he's so good at that. So let's bring Daniel. They find Daniel, who's at this point, like, on the older side. And he's like, okay, here's the deal. Daniel, I'll give you a third of the kingdom. I'll clothe you in purple. I'll give you a chain around your neck. And Daniel's like, I don't want any of that stuff. But I can read the writing on the wall. I want to preface this by saying you are not a king like your dad. Your dad was given the kingdom by God, and he understood that, at least in the end. You don't seem to get it. So here's what the writing says. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. And this is what it means. Mene, numbers, God's numbered your days and you're done. Tekel, it's like weight. You've been weighed out and God has not found you worthy. And Paris, your kingdom is going to be given to the Medes and the Persians. Here's the history thing. They blocked the river. So while Belshazzar is throwing this party, they have been walking under the wall of Babylon through the dry riverbed. This is insane. This is exactly like what God had done in a lot of ways when he blocked the Jordan so that there could be, you know, people moving across when he parted the Red Sea. But these are human beings. And the writing is on the wall. The Medes and the Persians invade and King Darius is made king over Babylon. Belshazzar is killed, but Daniel survives. Darius isn't an idiot, and he realizes Daniel is definitely someone he should be putting in charge. So here's the deal. King Darius has his kingdom set up so there's 120 administrators and then three presidents over the administrators so that there's like no way that anything can go wrong, and Daniel's one of the administrators. Other people are freaking out because Daniel's a foreigner, and he sucks, and he worships other gods, and he's the worst. And so they decide they want to get rid of Daniel. Now, Daniel's also basically impossible to get rid of by scandal. Like, there's nothing you can say bad about Daniel that's going to hold up in court. Except for one thing. He doesn't worship the gods of the Medes and the Persians. And he didn't worship the gods of the Babylonians. So they hatch a plan. They tell King Darius that he should throw, like, a month-long worship me party where everyone only has to pray to him because, you know, he's king over the greatest kingdom in the world, the kingdom of Persia. Yeah! Woo! And in the law of the Medes and the Persians, you can't, like, undo a law if you're the king. The law has to stand throughout the duration. So they talk Darius into signing this law that for 30 days people can only pray to him, and if they don't pray to him, they'll be thrown into a lion's den. Yeah, it's Daniel in the lion's den. They'll be thrown into a lion's den. And so Daniel hears this and is like, well, this sucks. And of course, immediately prays to God, not to King Darius. And these little spies who are jealous of Daniel see him doing it. They catch him in the act. They bring him before Darius. And Darius goes pale and weak at the knees because he didn't want to kill Daniel. But he can't undo this law. So he is freaking out. But there's only one thing to be done. Daniel must be thrown into this lion's den. And so Darius, who is deeply upset at this, tells Daniel to pray and is like, I pray that your God can rescue you too because this is terrible. And Darius stays up all night, can't eat, can't sleep. He's a wreck because he didn't think about Daniel when he made this law. And in the morning, he runs to the lion's den to try to see if Daniel's like maybe still barely breathing to see if he can rescue him. And he calls down and Daniel's like, hey, what's up? You guys want to open up the gate so I can, like, get out now? Or are you guys going to leave me down here, you know, another day? And they're like, oh, my God, oh, my God, pull him up, pull him up. Daniel comes up and he's like, yeah, no, God took care of me. Shut all the lion's mouths. Just kind of chilled. A little stressful, but I got through it. 
and King Darius like falls over and worships God. And then he's like, now where's those mofos who made me make this law? And he has those men and their families brought before him, throws them in the lion's den, and their bodies don't even hit the ground before the lions have devoured them. So it's not that they weren't hungry. It's that God said no to the lions. And so Darius follows up the injunction from King Nebuchadnezzar that said that everyone can worship this God. Anyone can worship the God of Daniel. And so they do. And after Daniel, who has been rescued from the lions, who's been rescued from a bad diet, who's been rescued from impossible dream interpretations. He spends most of his life and most of the rest of the book of Daniel prophesying, writing down prophecies about things yet to come, uh, things that, you know, Christians and Jews alike believe have happened, things that have not. Daniel continues his career as a prophet and a wise man and a badass until the first year of King Cyrus, Darius's son. Yeah, that King Cyrus, who would eventually allow the refugees from Judah to return home. Next episode, we're going to take a detour from what happens when they return home and what happens afterward to review, oh my God, the weirdest story that doesn't have anywhere that it really goes. So we're going to go over it next week, the book of Job. Catch you then. <laughs>